1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of fight back more of what you want to hear from the week that was are we in a sixth wave in Ontario and how long will it be before 50 plus adults are offered a fourth shot of COVID vaccine. These were two of the hot topics on Fight Back this past week after the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. authorized second booster shots of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for adults 50 and over. As for whether we're in a sixth wave in Ontario, it depends on who you ask. There's no doubt hospitalizations related to COVID are on the rise prompting Libby to ask the question of Dr. Barry Pekis, York Region's medical officer, and epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University.
2: Well, you know, imagine uh, your eyes are closed and you're feeling your way along the ground, and the ground starts to rise up. You don't really know whether it's a little anthill that's going to go up about four feet, or this is the beginning of the foothills of the rockies, yet... And that's where we are in the data. The, uh, the indicators we've always used, which, of course, have been the case counts, which have been uh, not reliable since the very beginning, and they're even less now because we're really not doing the testing. Uh, the ones we look at now are hospitalization rates, uh, ICU rates, and the signal from wastewater. The hospitalization rates have started to increase both among the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Just in the last week or so, hospitalization is slowly going up. We don't know how far they're going to go. Maybe it's just a little speed bump, or maybe this is going to be another wave. We just don't know yet. Uh, Death rates are, are staying pretty flat at the moment. But the wastewater indicator, all those areas in Ontario are showing an increase, quite a steady increase now for about three weeks. And it's not faltering, it's not a little blip, it's certainly going up. And uh, remember, the, the wastewater is, an, it is a leading uh, indicator. It's, it's going to be tracking virus uh, moving around uh, two or three days before people have symptoms, and certainly about three, or three weeks, two or three weeks before anybody goes in the hospital. So it's a very advanced indicator. We, we need to be looking at that.
3: Dr. Pecus, do you think we're in a sixth
4: wave? I, w- I wouldn't say, you know, I would really agree. I wouldn't say a wave, yes. Um, certainly, you know, if you were to look at a place like Ottawa and look at their wastewater data, that's just going up, you know, precipitously there, and almost, I think, at two thirds of what it was during the maximum phase of the uh, the previous Omicron wave uh, in in January, um, you know, we would look like it. But I but I think it's it's not just about what the wastewater is doing, or even you know, anecdotally what we're experiencing the population. What really matters is the impact on on our health care system at this point in the pandemic. We haven't yet seen that. Hopefully, we won't see that because we have excellent vaccination rates. Um, But we, you know, it's something we've yet to see. So I I think it will become a lot more clear over two or three weeks to come. The impact of, you know, removing the mask mandate. From the most part, what I've seen is many people are keeping their masks on, and I think that's going to, you know, help dull the wave. And certainly. You know, when we look at people who are vulnerable or immunocompromised, people are keeping their masks on to protect those people. And those people themselves are keeping their masks on to keep the, protect themselves. And, and that's going to somewhat insulate us against cases dramatically rising. But, you know, it's something we're just going to have to wait another couple of weeks to tell.
3: I was uh, surprised. I did some grocery shopping on the weekend uh, at a place where I would have thought people would have taken off their masks, but they hadn't.
2: Yeah, Libby, I, uh, Libya, I, I agree. Um, and I think Ontario, uh, is, 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 shall we say, characterized by a good, solid dollop of common sense in this area. And, I, and I, I see the same thing. I used to live in Taiwan and also Hong Kong for a while, and uh, long before the pandemic. And whether you either there or in Tokyo Singapore, you'll see people wearing masks on the street just normally. Uh, either keeps the dust out of their lungs, or they, if they have a cold, they don't want to spread it around and vice versa. It was a normal way of life. And I think that may be what we see here a little bit. Nothing wrong with seeing somebody uh, on the subway wearing a mask. I just hope hope very much that people don't start ridiculing them. We don't want to go back to that primitive ridiculousness.
3: Dr. Pekas, uh, last word to you. Yeah, I,
4: I would definitely agree. I think you know we, we may need a manual shot, but you know what? you know, vaccine technology is, is really progressing. I'm certainly hopeful um, whether it's flu or uh, omicron variants uh, that we may get, vaccine that protects us even better and may get a vaccine that protects us year to year. That would be terrific. Um, But in the meantime, you know, using what we have right now, you know, an annual shot may be the sort of thing that we're going to be looking at. But but really, I'm not pronouncing that right now because we still have some time until the fall and, and a lot can change.
1: Dr. Barry Pekis, York Region's Medical Officer, and Epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We learned this week 60,000 Ukrainian refugees so far are coming to Canada to work or study as part of a new three-year program while Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine continues. Among those organizations helping to bring Ukrainians to Canada is Jewish Immigration Aid Services, known as JIAS. On Thursday, Libby spoke with Peter Storin of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress Toronto Branch and Elise Herzig of jiaz Toronto. What's interesting about
5: this program is that many, as, as many of you know, people are leaving Ukraine under dire circumstances. They're grabbing what they can before they leave their homes and walking most of the time or getting listed to places of safety. And what this program allows is someone to apply without a passport. So passport um, documentation tends to be a real big problem for people when they're trying to go to another country, and the fact that the biometric test is the only test that they're going to need is actually not as difficult as actually, as getting papers that might be
6: required.
3: Peter, what's your take on this? Uh, I mean, people fleeing their homes, I don't know if they've got Wi-Fi. Do they speak English uh, about getting these forms done?
7: Well, it's certainly a challenge uh, for the vast majority of them. We know a very large percentage are are coming uh, from, from eastern Ukraine where obviously the, uh, the worst shelling and the bombardment of cities um, is, is horrific. And so people don't even have homes to go back to at this point. Uh, our latest numbers actually in Europe, they're saying it's now over 5 million people. Wow. Uh, the numbers, the numbers and close to 5 million, if not more displaced people in Ukraine alone. So we're talking about 10 people, 10 million people that are no longer in their homes. And they're just looking for support as much as possible on the goodwill of people. And, uh, our biggest issue, though, is all these people that are trying to come to Canada um, are not recognized as refugees, which means they get absolutely zero federal, provincial, municipal support. So they don't—they can't apply for healthcare coverage. They will have no financial assistance. They don't even get housing. So, if sixty thousand were to arrive in Canada without any means and any support, it would be huge. Burden obviously for, for any community. So this is why we're, we're lobbying very hard and working with the federal government to ask them to actually provide some kind of financial support. So you don't have tens of thousands of people arriving in Canada. And, and another thing is, is, is they, we're talking about 90% of them. The statistics shown here, 90% are women and children. So how does the mother coming into Canada with two young children they are under this visa program. They'll be allowed to work. But a mother with two young children—we've already seen cases like this. Another mo- mother arrived recently with three children, all under the age of six. How does that lady go go to work and try to try to support the family? It, they're they're stri- really going to rely on support from the community, if it's possible. But we're doing our very best. But we know that we are going to be overwhelmed very quickly. Um, those those basic needs. Is, is really the gap that we need to address immediately.
5: And Elise? Thank you. Since, since Peter already got that one in, I'm just going to say that there were tremendous opportunities for people to step up and get involved. So whether it is creating opportunities for jobs, if it's opportun- stay informed so people know the facts, but we're creating a joyous welcome circles where volunteers of groups of five to eight can be there to help support these newcomers and be give them the support they need to integrate and orient themselves into life in Canada, help them rebuild their social and their professional networks. And we're building this on a system we've done before with hundreds of other refugees, you know, where we see that volunteers actually make a big difference in helping someone successfully integrate into Canada, but also in a quicker way. And so, as Peter said, this community has the potential to really be active, contributing members of society, and that's what they want. But we just need to make sure that Canada steps up and helps them.
1: Libby's conversation on Thursday with Elise Herzig of Jaya's Toronto as well as Peter Storin of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress Toronto branch. I'm Jane Brown and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back coming up after the break. When will tour operators receive pandemic funding promised months ago by the Ontario government? That story is next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back.
1: It was a promise made by the Ford PCs at Queen's Park back in September, $100 million for the hard-hit tourism industry, which basically has been shut down throughout the pandemic. During the COVID crisis, we've heard about businesses that are barely staying alive. And as of this past Wednesday, March 30th, not a single dollar of that cash had been paid out. So when will stakeholders in the travel industry see this money? Libby had a conversation around this concerning issue with Daniel Safayeni, VP of Policy at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, Christopher Bluer, President and CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario, and Bruce O'Hare, founder of Lakeshore Excursions.
8: We are tour operators. We have been doing this for 20 years. The the cruise business on the Great Lakes, and it may come as a surprise to some of your listeners, is is growing. And it's growing very quickly. When COVID began in March 2020, Transport Canada and Public Health Canada, Agency of Canada they did the right thing, and they suspended our operations and everyone else right across Canada. So we went from hero to zero, and our losses would be probably somewhere around uh, $6 million dollars.
3: When did you apply for this fund?
8: Yeah, we uh, actually saw the fund and we waited uh, and applied in early November. And uh, we filled out a few of these. It's not the first time. We filled out a, another uh, application earlier on for funding from the province. And we were denied that one. That was uh, in 2020. Second round, we, yeah, we're, we continue to wait. They were supposed to let us and everyone else know May the 8th. Uh, here we are at the end of March, and uh, so far, radio silence.
3: Let's bring in uh, Christopher Bloor. I mean, I am assuming that there are companies that in this interim have gone under.
9: Uh, What you've just heard from Bruce uh, is kind of the uh, picture that we've had within the industry for the last two years. Our industry has been labeled the hardest hit, and it really has been in terms of the bottom line for many of our businesses. And so, Our industry has lost two real full summers. And so we're really talking about how we can plan to be back in 2023 and 2024. And this summer is a really important part of it. But for our businesses to scale up, they need to be able to rehire Ontarians. Uh, They need to make changes to their business layouts. That money that has been promised in the recovery program, which is an excellent program, really could have done with coming out a couple of weeks earlier at least. And that would have given our businesses a level of certainty that they've not had over the last two years to make business decisions. So many of our businesses have met that 50% revenue loss criteria that was at the heart of this program. And, and to me, it probably suggests that we're going to need to go back to the provincial government and the federal government for more funding because if we really want our tourism industry to remain uh, as competitive as it has been over the last few years, it's really been such an economic driver for us in Ontario, we're going to need to get this industry through this really difficult recovery period.
3: Daniel Safayeni, okay, I get that it takes some time. But uh, what have these bureaucrats done? I mean, what is a reasonable amount of time to get money out the door? We've repeatedly called out the need that when you have public health measures
6: being implemented, that's going to impact the viability of businesses through no fault of their own. It needs to be met immediately and commensurately with financial support targeted directly towards those impacted and so i think the frustration now is that why so many months and years into the pandemic are we still sounding like a bit of uh, a broken record when it comes to um the importance of the timeliness for these programs to be rolled out because as you're hearing on the line right now um there is a material impact um for businesses Uh, in terms of their ability to plan, to sustain their operations, to gear up for the tourism season, which is weeks away to that. And I will just say that uh, the Ontario Chamber is partnering with the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario um, to host some joint roundtables and to uh, come up with a made in Ontario tourism strategy for what the future of the sector could look like. But to get there, we need to make sure that we uh, can uh, appropriately support the folks that are trying to survive right now in this sector uh, amidst all this uncertainty.
1: Daniel Safayani, VP of Policy at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, Christopher Bloor, President and CEO, Tourism Industry Association of Ontario, and Bruce O'Hare, founder of Lakeshore Excursions. They were in conversation with Libby on Wednesday. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Indigenous delegates who traveled to Rome to meet with Pope Francis this past week received a private tour of precious Indigenous artifacts at the Anima Mundi Ethnological Museum, which includes some of the Vatican's collection, which has not been seen publicly in decades or ever. Beautiful and meaningful items included embroidered gloves from a Cree community, a baby belt from Gwich'in community, moccasins from British Columbia, and a rare kayak. There was an official request last year that the items be returned, and the delegates to Rome also say the items should be returned to their communities. Many of the objects were taken away from Indigenous people after the Canadian government outlawed cultural practices through the Indian Act in 1876. Representatives with the Vatican have said parts of the collection were gifts to popes and the church. Libby was joined by a panel of experts to discuss. Dr. Gerald McMaster is a Canadian research chair at OCAD University and director of Wapata Centre for Indigenous Visual Knowledge. And Cody Grote is assistant professor in the Department of History and the Indigenous Studies Program at Western University.
10: There is a lot of effort to have these repatriated back to Canada, but from there it's only a step one because there are a lot of cultural items within Canadian institutions as well, that Indigenous nations want to see back within their own traditional territories so they can properly steward and care for those ancestral items as well. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot going on here.
3: Dr. McMaster, tell me about how that collection ended up in the Vatican, and also you have your own experience trying to see them.
11: The objects that we're told, and this is I'm just going online like everyone else seems to be at this point, um, and what what they do indicate is that uh, some of the the church has been collecting since the late seventeenth century, and that um, and some of the works actually that they've collected date back to what is often referred to as pre columbia in other words, prior to the arrival of Columbus and his gang. And and then soon after that, you had Catholic missions around the world. Uh, to evangelize the indigenous populations. And frequently they would probably, uh, I'm told, or at least what you read is that they would send back objects back to Rome. So thus began the collections. And then uh, in 1926, I believe, there was an exhibition in the Vatican bringing the objects together for some exhibition. Well, 1926 is right, as Cody was saying, right in the middle of a period when it was illegal for indigenous peoples to be indigenous. In other words, the government and the church were intent on taking at that time, the words, I believe of, uh, John A. McDonald, take the Indian out of the child, you know, so that, uh, the, the assimilation, uh, policy was in its full force. Um, and so any cultural, um, any items, As I would often, I've written about, became almost useless because you couldn't practice your your religion, you couldn't you couldn't even dress up uh, and put on your traditional outfits. I remember doing some research about the Calgary Stampede, even and when the folks at the Stampede had to write to Duncan Campbell Scott, who was the Superintendent of Indian Affairs, asking them permission to have local Blackfeet come and participate. And he said, no, they can't. They should be on the reservation uh, farming and becoming good Canadians, basically. So so you have this period in which objects, basically, they were illegal to have for Indian people because they were confiscated by the governments and sent to museums. And it's possible that the church during this time was also doing the same thing. So they'd be in collusion with the law at that time.
3: Cody, is it particularly galling that not only they have these objects, but it's not like they display it very much? Some of these things have apparently never been displayed. Is that something that is an issue for you?
10: I definitely think it is. And, you know, besides the cultural items, I also know that there's a lot of um, archival-type documents. For example, the Vatican Collection has Wigwasebek um, like or birch bark Scrolls, which are kind of specific to the Ojibwe Nations in Ontario. They have wampum belts. And these are all documentary heritage that can tell us about history's political relationships, relationships with settlers, like Dr. McMaster was just mentioning. So it's not even these cultural items that really speak to our cultural sovereignty and continuity, but it's these items that actually tell us a bit about our own histories in a narrative form as well, but we don't know what is in these collections. Um, It's really hard to really comprehensively bring these back to our communities and we're not sure where these items are.
1: Cody Grote, Assistant Professor in the Department of History and the Indigenous Studies Program at Western University, and Dr. Gerald McMaster, Canadian Research Chair at Oakhead University and Director of Wapata Centre for Indigenous Visual Knowledge. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was, and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Mary from Aurelia called about whether she will get a fourth COVID shot when it's offered.
5: I would definitely um, get it. I'm over 50 and I'm compromised. I live in a home um, with two people that are compromised, or elderly, so I would want to make sure that they're well protected.
1: Caroline in Halliburton phoned about whether she'll get a fourth COVID shot.
5: My husband and I have had three shots already. We're fine. Uh, We've also been exposed uh, at Christmas time and had symptoms for a couple of days, but fortunately didn't become ill. And we've both sort of come to the conclusion that this is going to be like the flu as far as the vaccinations are concerned. We're quite prepared to take a shot every year as we do to protect us from the flu. And uh, I can appreciate that this is still a very much a learning exercise as we go through, and that all may change depending on what happens over the next six months or so. But, but basically, it's learning to live with it, and we will do so.
0: And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the
1: winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Pat in Toronto, who phoned about rising COVID hospitalizations related to loosened public health restrictions.
12: I'm getting very concerned with the use of statistics. I mean, it all sounds great to say, well, the rate has dropped or it you know, it's only x. If one person dies, because we didn't wear masks, that is one person too much. Now, you also can take the other aspect that if people get sick and go to the hospital, they may survive, but it may cost for each one of them tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. So there are two very good reasons that we should be very vigilant and we should maintain as many of these practices as possible that really don't impact our daily life, but will save somebody or a number of people's lives.
1: That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at FightbackLibby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Ecock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.